Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I want to give a special shout out to all of our online donors who give through ParadoxGiving.com. Thank you for making this podcast possible. Today we are looking at Deuteronomy 15 and this episode is entitled The Generosity of Deuteronomy. We are in the middle of a three-month series in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you have joined us for the previous two installments of this series, then you know that Deuteronomy is a mega-sermon delivered by Moses to the children of Israel right before his death and right before the children of Israel are about to enter the Promised Land. Now, it's not often I use the term mega-sermon, but if you were there and Moses preached this sermon, then you would listen to him speak for nearly four hours uninterrupted. Can you imagine listening to a four-hour sermon outdoors while you're standing without any electronic amplification? Yet that's precisely what the children of Israel did according to Deuteronomy. Now what I find fascinating about this homiletical behemoth is the fact that while there is a lot of words to slog through, there is also profound wisdom in this sermon if we are willing to be patient. To give you an example of this, all we have to do is look at the first four chapters of the book. In these opening lines, Moses offers the thesis statement behind his sermon, which is basically three words. Don't worship idols. Now, this may seem like a rather inefficient point to drive home for four hours during a mega sermon. <laughs> But in the first part of our series in this book, we talked at length about why this restriction of idols is the thesis of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses then goes on to recite the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and then we encounter the prayer that I find to be profound in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. This prayer is known as the Shema, the most important prayer in Judaism, and the Shema reveals the radically progressive and the radically traditional idea that God is one. We talked at length about the Shema and the oneness of all things in part two of this series when we studied Deuteronomy together. After the Shema, Moses goes on to offer a prelude to the law of Moses over the next several chapters. This prelude can be best summed up in the following way. Hey, Israel. Follow the rules I'm about to give you, or else God is going to kick you out of the promised land. And after giving that prelude, Moses then dives into the bulk of his sermon and the bulk of this book from chapter 12 to 26, which contains a gaggle of laws that Israelites must keep going forward. He starts off this section on laws by saying, These are the statutes and ordinances that you must diligently observe in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to occupy all the days that you live on the earth. Now, if you have been paying attention for the first 11 chapters of this book, then you can very easily guess what the first law is going to be that kicks off all of the laws in these next 15 chapters. The reason you can guess is because you know the thesis of this book, and the first law lines up with that thesis. 
The first law decrees that the Israelites must destroy any religious architecture that is not sanctioned by the forthcoming government. In fact, the entire 12th chapter of Deuteronomy is devoted to centralizing the religion of Israel at the temple in Jerusalem. Which is rather suspicious, isn't it? Because the temple will not be built for another three or four hundred years after Moses gives this sermon. The city of Jerusalem has not yet been established. This is why many scholars believe that the book of Deuteronomy was composed after the death of Moses, when a temple already existed and people would know what these laws about the temple actually meant. This centralization of worship at the temple was meant to serve as a political and religious agenda for a government at a different era than the era of Moses. This agenda is even more transparent when we read the next chapter of Deuteronomy when Moses gives the children of Israel permission to kill any prophet, repeat, any prophet from any religion that is outside of the temple structure in Jerusalem. Then in the 14th chapter, Moses tells everyone what's acceptable to eat and what is not according to their religion. And you can look up that list for yourself if you want to know whether it's okay for you, according to Moses, to eat a plate of roasted rock badger. After this extensive list of dietary restrictions, the 14th chapter wraps up with a description of how to tithe your money and your monetary profits correctly to the centralized religion at the temple in Jerusalem. Now at this point, we are three chapters into the 15 chapters of Moses' laws, 20% of the way in, and the entire thing sounds like propaganda, doesn't it? When I read Deuteronomy, I'm almost always tempted to start skimming at this point because the whole thing feels so religious. And then chapter 15 happens. And if you're skimming, you can miss this chapter. Because this chapter takes us by surprise in the fact that it's not religious propaganda at all. In 15 verse 1, Moses says, At the end of every seven years, you must declare a cancellation of debts. What? A cancellation of debts? Did Moses write this? Or was this written by Bernie Sanders? What kind of debts are you talking about, Moses? Now Moses goes on to answer that question in the next line. He says, this is the nature of the cancellation. Every creditor must remit what he has loaned to another person. Whoa, Moses means all the debts. Which raises the question, who's going to pay for that? To which it doesn't seem like Moses is overly concerned who will pay for that. Now Moses should know that he can't just go around wiping debt off of books. People have mortgages, right? People have car payments. They have medical bills. How can Moses possibly suggest, possibly believe it's a good idea to cancel everyone's debt? And not just once, but to cancel everyone's debt every seven years. 
Moses goes on in verse 3 to write, The lender must not force payment from his fellow Israelite, for it is to be recognized as the Lord's cancellation of debts. Okay, slow down, Moses. Don't we need to acknowledge that there are two sides to every story that involves loaning money? How is it that the lender is always on the hook for this money if the person who is in debt can't pay this off? Moses goes on, you may exact payment from a foreigner, but whatever your fellow Israelite owes you, you must remit. To which someone might say, see all this and say, oh, I get it. This is an insider's club. If you're born here in Israel, you can have your debts forgiven. We'll just force the immigrants into massive debt and profit off the interest that they owe us. But before we can fully flesh out that xenophobic idea, Moses interjects with the very next words, where he says, However, there should not be any poor among you, for the Lord will surely bless you in the land that he is giving you as an inheritance, if you carefully obey him by keeping all these commandments that I am giving you today. So Moses says it's immoral to make anyone poor, whether they are a citizen of Israel or someone who has immigrated into Israel. And anytime someone who has money drives another person into debt, and that person refuses to consider a cancellation of that debt, then Moses tells us that we are ignoring this higher commandment. In fact, he even goes so far as to say it is a sin. According to Moses, it's our responsibility to ensure that we don't cause anyone, anywhere, at any time, to become poor. While this may seem progressive or liberal or impossible to attain, Moses isn't done yet. He says, For the Lord your God will bless you just as God has promised. If a fellow Israelite from one of your villages in the land that the Lord your God has given you should be poor, you must not harden your heart or be insensitive to his impoverished condition. Instead, you must be sure to open your hand to him and generously lend him whatever he needs. Moses declares that one should not see loaning money to someone who is poorer than them as an option. Instead, Moses views all of these economics as an obligation and a responsibility. Now, if you're like me, you're listening to this sermon and thinking, wow, if I loaned someone money, like let's say $100, right before the seventh year, that year in which all the debts are supposed to be canceled, what would happen? Maybe I'll just make sure to loan out my money during the first year of the seven-year cycle so I can follow Moses' law, but that will also ensure the highest probability that I'll get my $100 back. Moses anticipates my thought process here, and he has some very strong words for me. In the very next verse, he says, Be careful lest you entertain the wicked thought that the seventh year, the year of cancellation of debts, has almost arrived, and your attitude be wrong toward your impoverished fellow Israelite, and you do not lend him anything. He will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be regarded as having sinned. Wow. 
If someone who is impoverished asks me for money and I have the money to help them, but before I lend them money, I think, wait, the seventh year of debt cancellation is near. I might get screwed. Well, that, my friends, Moses says is wicked. Moses explains in the next verse, you must by all means lend to him and not be upset by doing it. For because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you attempt. There will never cease to be some poor people in the land. Therefore, I am commanding you to make sure you open your hand to your fellow Israelites who are needy and poor in your land. And with that, Moses' left-wing economic plan of canceling all debts every seven years comes to a close. Moses presents a radical political plan for people who are about to enter the promised land and start making a lot of political plans. Can you imagine if our society, the United States of America, actually followed Moses' plan? We would take out mortgages on homes and the longest term we could possibly find for a mortgage would be seven years. All of your student debt, no matter how much you could or you could not pay, would be wiped clean in less than a decade. And if you could never find your way out of a negative balance on your credit cards, well then Moses suggests that you get to start over every seven years with a fresh credit score. Now this all sounds like a high and mighty political discussion, doesn't it? And if you're like me, you're really tired of high and mighty political discussions. But is there something really personal, really practical, and really possible going on here? Because I think there is. And for the remainder of this sermon, I'd like to share three ideas that are personal, practical, and possible, and all of them are rooted in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 15. I believe that these three ideas can help us to be more human in 2021. And I think these are three ideas worth sharing. So let's begin with the first idea of Deuteronomy 15. Right now, there is more chatter and more movement and more discussion in Washington, D.C. about the possibility of forgiving all student debt that is owed to the federal government. In all of my years of life, I have never heard so large of a collective voice from leaders calling for this action immediately in an effort to stimulate the economy. Unsurprisingly, and a bit tragically, the overwhelming majority of people who oppose the cancellation of student debt are white Christians who look a lot like me. Now, the irony of all of this is that these same white Christians who oppose the remission of educational debts profess to believe in the authority of Scripture as attested to in the Holy Bible. And in Scripture, there is a book called Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter portrays a hero of the faith, Moses, declaring that a society's economy should be built on the idea that all debts are canceled, all debts are remitted, and all debts are forgiven every seven years. It doesn't take much imagination to extrapolate that if Moses were alive in America today, that he would most likely support and be in favor of 
canceling student debt as outlined by certain lawmakers. And when we consider that Moses would probably be on that side of this issue, it's a bit of a bizarre kind of mental exercise to imagine all of the Christians that would openly oppose Moses and label him as a socialist. Now, I tell you all this because, my friends, no matter what we identify as politically, the thing that we have to acknowledge here is that canceling student debt is a biblical idea. And most Christians I know who oppose canceling student debt have no idea that Moses ever spoke these words in Deuteronomy 15. I believe this ignorance is from the fact that the church has consistently turned a blind eye to Moses' radical economic plans. Pastors are actually discouraged from preaching on these passages, like Deuteronomy 15, because these sermons are deemed to be too political and too divisive for congregations. But the fact is that when we are talking about the cancellation of student debt today, we have to acknowledge that that discussion is deeply rooted in the tradition of Scripture. Canceling student debt is a biblical idea. Now, if you have never listened to this podcast before, you might be a bit confused. So to all the first-time listeners out there who have joined us on this episode, welcome. I am thrilled that you are here. Here at Paradox, we find that it is important for us to acknowledge certain discussions we have today as biblical topics. However, unlike most churches I've encountered, we do not believe that every biblical idea is a good idea. We actually find that it's important to label some biblical ideas as bad ideas. Allow me to share three examples of bad biblical ideas. In the book of Leviticus, God tells men that they should never sit on a seat where a menstruating woman once sat. This is a bad idea. It's a biblical idea, but it's a bad idea. <laughs> In Ezra and Nehemiah, the high priest and the governor believe that God hates interracial marriage. They force every male citizen to get a divorce if they are married to a foreigner and then force those men to disown their children and shove them out into the wilderness, all so that their nation can be, quote, more religious. This is a bad idea. It's a biblical idea, but it's a bad idea. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells everyone that they shouldn't get married. And the only reason they should get married is if they just cannot contain their lustful desire for another human being. This is a bad idea. It's a biblical idea, but it's also a bad idea. My friends, the Bible is filled with ideas and some of them are really good but some of them are also really bad. Christians in America today place a rather recent expectation on the Bible that every idea in the Bible has to be a good idea or the Bible's not inspired. That expectation has suffocated Scripture. 
That expectation has made it really difficult for us to read the Bible today. Because when we read the Bible, we encounter all kinds of bad biblical ideas. And because the church tells us that every idea has to be a good idea in the Bible, when we counter the bad ideas, it kind of breaks up or blows apart our faith. Which is why we need to return the Bible to being a launching point for discussions rather than an ending point for discussions. Christians must develop the ability to designate some biblical ideas as bad. Personally, I believe that we should cancel all federal student debt. I think it would be good for our country. I believe that Moses' idea for canceling all debts every seven years is a really good biblical idea. But you may be listening to this. You may even be smarter than me. You may even possess an economics degree. And if that's you and you're listening to this and you're just about to shut this off, you may be thinking to yourself, what are you talking about, Craig? Do you have any idea how economics work? To which I would say, a little, not nearly as much as you. <laughs> but you can tell me, Craig, this is a terrible idea and let me tell you why. And that's fine. You can tell me that this is a bad idea. But what you cannot do is deny that canceling student debt is a biblical idea. Because Moses definitely addressed the idea and the topic of canceling debts. So this big conversation on student debt leads to a much bigger conversation that is important for Christians to have today. We need to discard the theological expectations that every idea in the Bible is a good idea. This is the first idea from Deuteronomy 15 that I have found to be helpful. And the moment we release scripture from this oppressive expectation is the moment that I believe we can begin to enjoy scripture again. The second idea involves focusing on what is happening behind the scenes of this portion of Moses' mega sermon. What exactly is Moses trying to do with these words in Deuteronomy 15? Is this passage meant to be commands that Moses gives that we are supposed to blindly follow? Or is there something deeper going on here? Because when I read this passage, I see that Moses is trying to change the way that people live, the way that people move, and the way that people act in the world. For me, this is more about spiritual posture than it is about following rules. Moses says in verses 7 and 8, If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. Instead, you must be sure to open your hand to him and generously lend him whatever he needs. Whew. That's something right there. Moses speaks before a large and diverse collection of human beings on the cusp of building a society together. And you know what he sees in these humans? He sees humans 
who are living with clenched fists. They are worried that when they get into the promised land, that there will not be enough. They have a sense that when they arrive, they better sprint into the promised land so that they might get the most fertile plot of land, the biggest plot of land, or even the most plots of land. There is a low-level anxiety that when this new society starts in the promised land, that the person next to you listening to this same sermon might get a better deal than you. So you better take all that you can get. In this passage, Moses speaks to the human condition. He sees people who are about to experience more wealth, more prosperity, and more blessings than they have ever known. And their whole approach to this extraordinarily generous gift is to respond with a clenched fist. To them, in that moment, Moses offers some spiritual advice. He says, open your hand. It's okay. You will have enough. You don't have to live with clenched fists. You can live with a mindset and a heart and a posture that is ready and expectant for generosity. Open your hand. At the end of this passage, Moses reminds the Israelites of this beautiful wisdom. He says, there will never cease to be some poor people in the land. Therefore, I am commanding you to make sure you open your hand to your fellow Israelites who are needy and poor in your land. In my lifetime, I have found that the most rewarding pursuit of spirituality is not found in attaining correct beliefs or in amassing a small mountain of biblical knowledge or even in devout church attendance. Rather, the most rewarding thing I have found in spirituality is that it can offer us a posture, a way of responding and expecting toward the world. Our natural default tendency as human beings is to look at all of the suffering in the world, all of the pain in the world, all of the heartache in the world, and to respond by shriveling with fear. We clench our fists around what is ours because we are terrified to lose it. We are scared that someone else will have a better deal than us. And if Moses was our guest speaker on the Paradox podcast today, I think he would look at all of us, clutching with strained knuckles to our money, to our possessions, to what we think we are owed, and he would say to us in a gentle tone, open your hand, live with generosity, change your posture toward life. Because look around you, there is more than enough here for all of us. My friends, no matter what you believe, the question that Deuteronomy 15 asks us today is, are you willing to live with open hands? 
This is a spiritual posture that is a choice that we make every day. Will we approach our day with suspicion or will we approach our day with wonder? When I think of the conversation of canceling student debt in America today, I am disappointed by how many Christians approach this topic with clenched fists rather than open hands. Why is generosity controversial? Why is forgiveness of debts problematic for Christians? Shouldn't Christians be the one to stand up and champion a remission of debts rather than condemn them? Christians, particularly white Christians, have chosen to strongly oppose the forgiveness of debts. And when you listen closely to the justification for this opposition, it reveals that Christians repeatedly ignore Moses' invitation to live with open hands. Instead, Christians choose to live with clenched fists. This clenched fist posture is revealed even more when we talk to Christians about the theological concept and the place of heaven. Christians love to hold heaven with clenched fists. They often tell the world that the road that leads to heaven is narrow, that there is only one way into heaven, that only a small select group of the spiritually elite will get to enter into heaven. And Christians often forsake just about every other commandment in the Bible if it means that it may call into question whether they get into heaven or not. To my Christian friends, I must ask, why do we hold on to heaven with such tight fists? Shouldn't heaven inspire us to be generous? Shouldn't heaven inspire us to be inclusive? Shouldn't heaven inspire us to greater forgiveness? Moses invites us to quit living with such tight fists and instead to let go of the idea that life is rooted in scarcity. Open your hands, he says. And what I have found is that spiritual maturity is living with open hands. This is the second idea from Deuteronomy 15 that I have found to be helpful. The third idea that is practical, personal, and possible from Deuteronomy 15 comes straight from Moses. At the end of his life, Moses has a strong desire for the children of Israel to live with open hands. But he doesn't just order them to be generous, does he? Instead, Moses tells them how to be generous. But you can miss these informative and helpful instructions if you aren't looking closely. To help us see how Moses believes that we can be generous people, I want to tell you three stories about generous people from history. The first story of generosity is the story of Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. In 1864, while the Civil War raged on, she graduated from the New England Female Medical College and became the first black American female medical doctor. She dedicated her life to serving women and children through medicine, particularly those who were 
poor and needy. She even viewed herself as a missionary and went in mission service to the state of Virginia after the Civil War to provide health care for those the government of Virginia did not. After nearly 20 years in practice of medicine in the form of servitude, she published in 1883 a book entitled The Book of Medical Discourses in Two Parts, which is most likely the first medical article published by a black woman. In the introduction, she wrote the following words about her life's work. It may be well to state here that having been reared by a kind aunt in Pennsylvania, whose usefulness with the sick was continually sought, I early conceived a liking for and sought every opportunity to relieve the sufferings of others. People do not wish to feel that death ensues through neglect on their part. Indeed, they speak of consumption, cholera infants, and diphtheria, etc., as if sent by God to destroy our infants. They seem to forget that there is cause for every ailment, and that it may be in their power to remove it. My chief desire in presenting this book is to impress upon somebody's mind the possibilities of prevention. The second story of generosity is the story of Augusta Savage. Savage grew up in impoverished conditions in Green Cove Springs, Florida. Because her family could not afford toys, she played in the mud in her backyard frequently. That mud was rich with red clay, which meant that Augusta could sculpt and mold shapes and objects out of the dirt as a child. While she did not know this at the time, she was developing her professional craft and she eventually became a sculptor. At the age of 29, she moved to Harlem with less than $5 in her pocket. She studied art and sculpture and then endured a tremendous amount of racism in the art world. But her sculptures were magnificent. She crafted portraits out of red clay. She crafted a sculpture of her nephew, Ellis Ford, and a bust of American folk hero, John Henry. Her most famous work was a submission for the 1939 World's Fair entitled Lift Every Voice and Sing. In this sculpture, there are 12 African-American singers whose choir robes create the strings of a harp, and they are held in place by the hand of God. During the Great Depression, Augusta Savage turned her art studio in Harlem into an art school. She gave daily art lessons to black artists in Harlem, and she didn't charge any of them a dime. When asked by an interviewer where she saw her place in the art world, Augusta Savage responded a few years later, I have created nothing really beautiful, really lasting, but if I can inspire one of these youngsters to develop the talent I know they possess, then my monument will be in their work. Her students included sculptor William Artis, painter Jacob Lawrence, and artist Gwendolyn Knight. All of these students and more sat at the feet of Augusta Savage, who helped to fuel the Harlem Renaissance with her art classes, and all of those art classes were free. The third story of generous living is the story of Dr. Mae Jemison. She was born in Alabama and then went to Stanford. While there, she graduated with two degrees, African American Studies and Chemical Engineering. She then enrolled in medical school at Cornell University and served abroad in the Peace Corps 
for multiple years. When she returned to the United States, she looked at all of her degrees and accomplishments and accreditations and said, you know what I really want to do? I want to go to space. So she applied to NASA to be an astronaut, and NASA accepted her. In 1992, Dr. Mae Jemison became the first African-American woman to fly into outer space. Obviously, there are a lot of cool things about going into space. One of these cool things is that every astronaut is allowed to bring a few things with them. A few years ago, Dr. Jemison discussed the possessions that she brought into space with her and why. She said, quote, I thought it was important to take to space with me things that represented people who sometimes are not included. So I took a poster of Judith Jameson performing the dance Cry. I took up a Bundu statue, which was for the Women's Society in West Africa. And I took up a flag for the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, the oldest African-American women's sorority in the United States. Because all of them had not been included. And I thought that was an important thing to do, close quote. And when I look at what Dr. Jemison teaches us from this extraordinary example of traveling into space, I see how she lived just like every astronaut has lived in an enormous blessing by getting the opportunity to go into space. And when she got the opportunity to live in that blessing, she looked around and said, Who's not here? Who's not included in this? Is there a way that I can bring them along? And every item that she brought with her was meant to include those who were excluded by space travel. And when I consider all three of these human stories, from Dr. Crumpler to Augusta Savage to Dr. Jemison, I am inspired by their generosity. Dr. Crumpler provided medical care for poor women and children. Augusta Savage offered art classes for free. Dr. Jemison included those whom space travel excluded. All three of these women lived with open hands. And if you look closely at the words that each of these women shared, they reveal how we can live with open hands as well. Dr. Crumpler spoke of her aunt, who was a nurse. Her aunt showed her day in and day out the immense value of taking every opportunity in front of her to relieve the suffering of another. Augusta Savage was asked about how she could give so much to her students for free, and she responded by saying that she received far more from her students than she had given them. Dr. Jemison did not believe that she was able to fly into space on her own, or that she earned this achievement because of her own work ethic. Instead, Dr. Jemison recognized that she stood on shoulders of all the black women who preceded her and included them in her expedition to space. What all three of these stories tell us about how we can live with open hands is that the grace we receive enables the generosity the world needs. We have to be able to receive grace in order to give grace away. When we receive but never give, we are committing the sin of greed. When we give but we never receive, we end up burning out, don't we? 
And when we refuse to give and also refuse to receive, we become lifeless. But when we can find a balance between the ability to receive grace and the courage to then give grace away to others, then at that moment, we are alive and we are living with open hands. This is how Moses tells the children of Israel to live generously. Three different times during the passage we read, he tells the Israelites that the reason they should live generously and live with open hands is because God has given them so much beauty, so much wonder, so much life, so much joy, and so much hope. All of this, Moses says, is a gift. And all you need to do is accept it. The only way that one can truly have a generous life is to first recognize how much generosity one has received. My friends, this is why the practice of Sabbath is so important. For six days, we give everything we have to the world. And then on the seventh day, there is an interruption. And God stops us in our busyness and says, Maybe today, you don't give anything. Instead, you simply receive. Look around you, my child. It's all beautiful. And it's all a gift for you. Moses invites us to live with open hands. And the key to living with open hands is to make sure that you and I can make time to receive grace, to accept grace, to hold grace, to practice the discipline of gratitude for the beauty that is right in front of us, to see that giving and receiving are not opposites, but instead are dance partners. And life is simply hell without one or the other. May we receive an abundance of grace. May we give away an abundance of grace. And may we be generous. Generous in our society. Generous in our politics. Generous in our religion. Generous in our relationships. And generous with ourselves. And may we live with open hands. <laughs>